Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Thank you to an anonymous donor to Midwest Food Bank who paid the sponsorship fee in hopes of spreading awareness. Learn more about this amazing nonprofit organization at MidwestFoodBank.org. My guest for today is Dr. Dan Allender. He's a prominent Christian therapist, author, professor, and speaker. And he's going to model today through story how to transform betrayal, ambivalence, and powerlessness into faith, hope, and love. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Dr. Allender. Laura, delightful to be with you. I'm so grateful for this time. And let's just start here. Will you give us a glimpse of your current phase of life? Well, I, gosh, I, I'm an old white male, which means I am knocking on the door of 70. So in that sense, I am, I would say, you know, in that last lap of life. And it is both a sweet gift to watch my adult children parent their children. I'm still thankfully working and able to do so. So I don't know if I can say much more other than I'm really enjoying the goodness of God in the land of the living. Mm, Well, you certainly have so much experience and wisdom to share with us. And you sound so youthful and I love that energy, but I'd love to know, I was reading on your website and I want you just to elaborate on this part where you talk about how you help others bridge the story of the gospel and the stories of trauma and abuse that mark so many. So can you elaborate on how you do that? Well, I would love to say I know how to do that, but that actually is part of the mystery and really glory of engaging human hearts and their story in that I know the gospel is the life-giving source where we will find truth, and therefore it opens our heart to grief and heartache, but it also opens our heart to a sense of wonder and joy. So I know as a result of of just looking at the nature of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the ascension of Jesus, that in many ways our life parallels heartache and loss, and yet redemption and glory, and the gift of kingdom power to be able to serve and do well. So in that sense, it's a matter of, can we tell the truth about the gospel? And can we tell the truth about our own lives? And if we do, there is something about the Spirit working to intersect the story of God in our story, in a way in which as long as we're truth-tellers and that we're open, open to what it is that he wants to reveal, there will always be this deepened connection between our story and God's story. Wow, that's beautiful. And would you be willing to go first and model this for us? 
Well, I absolutely would be honored to do so. I, I, you know, when I think about the reality of death, it is almost impossible for me not to think about what shapes all of us. And that's our family of origin. Whether you had the best mother and the best father and the best family on earth, the reality is, and this is not meant to be offensive, but you grow up among sinners. And if we honestly say, my mother, my father, were sinners, then what do we mean by sin? And Jesus is pretty clear that the nature of sin is lust and anger. And if we say lust, we unfortunately almost always think that that's sexual. But really, lust is a kind of demand. I demand you fill me. And then when I don't get filled the way I desire, I will make you pay. And there's that sense of anger. And Jesus says the nature of sin is adultery and murder. So I don't care if you came from one of the worst families on earth or one of the best. The reality is, if you say that there is no sin in your family, First John already says you're a liar. So the fact is, we all grew up among adulterers and murderers, which means there will be consequences. That is a sense of trauma. So as you invite me to that, I can say that my father was a really good man, and yet he was what I have referred to as monosyllabic, meaning he seldom ever said a full sentence, let alone a paragraph. It was more like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-uh, yeah, no. My mother was a very eccentric, demanding, insecure force. She could be witty and playful, and the next second, deeply broken and insecure. She could be kind, but she could be severely cruel. If the listeners know anything in terms of the category of borderline personality disorder, that would be a good description of my mother. My mother's deep insecurity and at times cruelty made her at times desperate in a way that I needed to come through for her because my father refused to do so. So already what I'm describing is a family in which I'm given a lot of power, but also a lot of responsibility that as a young boy, I'm just not meant to carry. No one's meant to carry the soul of their mother and father. So when we look at brokenness, that is the nature of what comes as a result of living in a fallen world. We also have to presume that God is not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. In fact, he chooses to use the dark cacophony of living in this world to reveal something of his intent for glory. So we need to look at each of our lives from the vantage point of brokenness and beauty simultaneously. So in some ways, I was taught at a very young age to be highly verbal and very strong. And God has used that. I've also misused it. And yet, even in brokenness, I have seen something of the glory of God 
in the work, not only of my redemption, but in terms of how my life has been used to bring goodness. So I think in many ways, one of the things that I try to help people address is can we look at the fact that all of our lives bear something of crucifixion, death, something of our lives bears the glory of redemption, resurrection, but we've all been given a kingdom power to be able to serve the great king. If we can look at our brokenness and our beauty, we can now tell the truth. Wow. And I think the fear of not having adequate time to unpack all of this is that sometimes I fear my response will sound trite, but my goal is just to fast forward a little ways because you've shared a little bit of the brokenness in childhood. And then later in life, it was that truth that really was kind of the light. And you seem to be a truth teller, and that's really important to you, I'm gathering. And so can you share the story about being confronted about being an alcoholic and how that truth set you on a different trajectory? Well, my world was filled with what I would call the escape of the complexity of the brokenness of my family through addiction. And alcohol uh, was certainly one of the experiences, even as a nine, 10 year old, when my parents would have a party and they would go down to the basement to dance or tap music. All the drinks that would be left, I don't know how I discovered it, but I discovered that when I drank those drinks, I felt a whole lot better about life than I did prior. Uh, so I began drinking at a very, very young age. And as that progressed, uh, again, not to go into vast detail, but uh, addiction spread into drugs, uh, further alcohol. And my conversion basically came in part because my best friend began uh, offering me a taste of the gospel as young as age 14. Uh, we went to college together, and at that point, I was involved in what I euphemistically referred to as illicit pharmaceutical sales, which is a way of saying drug dealing. And there was a contract put out on us by the Cleveland Mafia. And in that context, all that I'd already heard about the gospel became much more real at the thought of dying. And I remember just walking on a street, knowing that I could be shot at any moment and going, fine, fine. That was my inviting Jesus into my heart. And let's just say conversion was a slow process. And I ended up coming to the end of my collegiate career, not really knowing what I was going to do. And my best friend was going to seminary and he said, why don't you just come with me to seminary for a year? You know, I'm like, well, why would I do that? And he said, well, you can just think about God. Well, that was the context in which I had continued to drink heavily, went to school. And one particular moment, uh, I was in a prayer group with a professor, and I had a severe hangover and walked out of the library to go back to sleep it off. And he caught me, and I'm sure he could smell some of the effects of the evening before, and said to me, why don't you come visit me after this particular illness seems to have worn off? Well, I'd already caused some trouble at the seminary. I was already on probation. 
I just figured I was going to get thrown out. And I came into his office and to take a very long and sweet story for me and make it briefer, he rolled his chair over and his first words were, Dan, you're an alcoholic. And I looked at this gentleman and I said, Dr. Dillard, uh, now I may drink a little bit too much, but I'm not an alcoholic. And instead of arguing, he began to tell me his story, the story of his father, story of his brother, both who were severe alcoholics. He shared with me something of his own experience and he began to weep. And I think it was the very first time in my life that an adult male wept in my presence over me. And I was terrified. At that point in my life, I had faced being shot a number of times. Death was terrifying, but something that in some sense I had the bravado to not fear. But I was terrified. This man's kindness to share his story and invite me to engage my own life And what he spoke right before he dismissed me was, Dan, if you will let the Spirit of God indeed come into your life, you could be very used for the kingdom, and you will know a level of joy you don't know at this point. He didn't fire me, didn't dismiss me from school. He knew I was a very troubled young man. But in many ways, his tears, his story, and his blessing— I would really truly say was the beginning of a far deeper conversion, but also a sense of calling. If this man could touch my life in such brevity and yet such power, is it possible that indeed he was telling the truth and inviting me to be able to use my life for the kingdom? I look back to that moment as one of the great gifts of my life. And now a brief message from our sponsor. Midwest Food Bank exists to provide industry-leading food relief to those in need while feeding them spiritually. They are a food charity with a desire to demonstrate God's love by providing help to those in need. Unlike other parts of the world where there's not enough food, in America, the resources actually do exist. That's why food pantries and food banks like Midwest Food Bank are so important. The goods that they deliver to their agency partners help to supplement the food supply for families and individuals across our country, aiding those whose resources are beyond stretched. Midwest Food Bank also supports people globally through their locations in Haiti and East Africa, which are some of the areas hardest hit by hunger arising from poverty. This ministry reaches millions of people every year, and thanks to the Lord's provision, 99% of every donation goes directly toward providing food to people in need. The remaining 1% of income is used for fundraising, costs of leadership, oversight, and other administrative expenses. Donations, volunteers, and prayers are always appreciated for Midwest Food Bank. To learn more, visit midwestfoodbank.org or listen to episode 83 of The Savvy Sauce, where the founder, David Kieser, shares miracles of God that he's witnessed through this nonprofit organization. I hope you check them out today. Stories are so powerful, and it's not just a story to you. It's what you've lived, and there's so many lessons in that. And I would affirm that prophetic word that he spoke over you that's incredible to see how 
you really have been used to fight against evil and you're considered such a trauma expert and have worked with so many people. Are there any stories of trauma in your own life, small T trauma, large T trauma that you could also share and again, model for us if, if we've never processed through our own trauma? Well, I, I was a newly minted PhD psychologist when a, a client that I was working with, I think with third or fourth session, out of the blue, and I mean out of the blue, asked me, what do you know about sexual abuse? And at that moment, again, not to aggrandize my academic career, but I had a master of divinity at that point. That's about a four-year degree. I had a master's in counseling, which was about a two-year degree, my doctorate, which was about a six, seven-year degree. Like I'd spent almost my whole life in the academic world, and I had never spent, and I mean a single minute, on the topic of sexual abuse. So I remember looking at her when she asked me that question, and I thought, if I tell her the truth, she won't work with me. And yet, if I don't tell her the truth, she may ask me what I do know. And I, I'm not going to claim to be the maturest person in the world. I thought maybe lying was better, but I finally just decided in that millisecond to tell the truth. And it was, I really know nothing. And her response was, I know. And she said, if you'll work with me, I'll teach you everything I know. And I can tell you again, that was one of those doors as the experience with Dr. Dillard was one of those doorways into the kingdom of God, into the really heart of Jesus. So was that one question and that woman's response, because it began to open a realm that I had never thought about and thought in many ways, again, I, I knew that abuse occurred, but it wasn't relevant to my work, certainly wasn't relevant to my life. Well, in the long run, I began writing a book called The Wounded Heart. And as I wrote that book, I began teaching some of the material uh, that I was developing. And a good friend came to hear me at a conference and after sat with me and said, can I ask you a personal question? And I knew what was coming. Uh, it already had occurred. And he said, do you have a history of past abuse? And my response was, no, no, I don't. And he said, really, really, you don't have an, a history of past sexual abuse? And I said, no, I don't. And he said, well, can I ask it again? And I was, I was, I was fed up, like, whatever, sure. And he said, do you mean to tell me you've never felt sexual shame? And I'm like, well, of course I have. And I said, yeah, of course. And he said, you mean to tell me you've never felt sexually used? And immediately said, well, yes, of course. And he said, well, like when? And only a good friend could be that direct. And I said, well, I told him a story of an encounter with a scoutmaster uh, who took me back to his car to get equipment while we were on a camp uh, site and uh, exposed himself and asked me to touch him. And remember being totally frozen, so unclear what he was asking. And yet something in me just bolted and I ran. And I knew within seconds of running 
that the relationship with the scoutmaster who had indeed spent time grooming me, preparing me for this moment would never be the same. So I told him that story, told him about events that occurred as an athlete with older boys in locker rooms, told him a couple more stories. And he was literally, again, in tears, looking at me saying, are you telling me you've never been sexually abused? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, what if we use the definition you taught in this conference? And I responded, well, if you use that definition. And at that moment, I cannot even begin to tell you how a moment like that can, in one sense, cut the veil, literally open your eyes. And yet it did. And I remember looking at my stories that I just told him with a sense of, oh, my God, have I been abused? And the answer was clear from the Spirit, yes. So I think in part, what I'd underscore is none of us easily come to name the trauma that shaped our lives, whether it's about our family of origin or the particularities of events, whether small T or capital T trauma, that have in many ways shaped who we are and how we live in this world. But it was, to say the least, humbling to be under contract writing a book and having to name, oh my goodness, I'm writing this book out of my own experience, not just what I have learned from others and from the research that I've done. It was both humbling, but also profoundly disturbing and freeing. And it's been the gift that I feel I have been honored to engage in the lives of many others. And that is to say, you have allowed your heart to be blinded, but on the other hand, your heart knows what is true. And in that, the reality of the gospel will come to mean even more for you. Wow. Thank you for boldly and humbly going first. That is so profound. And it's truly a gift, Dr. Allender. And I recognize it's a costly one. So thank you for sharing. As we hear your story, if we realize maybe that's true of us, or maybe we're walking alongside a loved one who has experienced trauma, what is your recommendation for ways that we can best love and honor and support them? Oh, what a sweet question. I, I think in part, let, let's just say that trauma is inevitable living in a fallen world. No one escapes. And I love the way you even framed it earlier in terms of capital T and small t trauma. You know, capital T trauma is any event that has significantly blotted or blighted your sense of dignity through the violence or violation of others. But we all have small t traumas, heartache. A dear friend just lost her father. Death itself is trauma. Divorce is trauma. Betrayal of any sort is traumatic. So when we begin to name that all betrayal, all senses of powerlessness, but every experience of shame, shame alone is an experience of trauma. So if we can begin to hold an understanding that there are traumatic processes and events 
but it's part of living in a world that doesn't have a deep desire to bring you honor and delight. So wherever you have known violations of honor and delight, you are in the realm of trauma. And it always brings these three categories, fragmentation, a sense in which when we feel traumatized, our brains go offline. Our ability to think, to reason, to decide and choose is impaired. I don't care how mature you are. It's like cutting yourself with a knife. I don't care how mature you are. You're going to bleed. And in the same sense, no matter what you are, you're going to experience some degree of fragmentation, which almost inevitably leads to some degree of numbness. Like when we're in the middle of trauma, our emotions are so overwhelming that we just sort of shut down. And in that, we feel alone, isolated. So those three words, fragmentation, numbing, isolation. If we begin to understand trauma and what it begins to bring to our own life and to others, we need to become, shall we say, students of trauma because it's the inevitable reality that we're all in the middle of, especially in a pandemic, especially in the context of death having such ascendancy at this point, even more so in a culture that is so profoundly antagonistic, hate-filled, polarized, we are living in a deeply traumatic era. And the more we understand trauma, the better we have resources in the gospel to be able to engage it. And I like how you say, become a student of trauma. And for decades now, you've walked with people and guided them on their healing journey And so one of the ways that we can even become students of trauma is learning through some of your resources and three come to mind. If you wouldn't mind just elaborating on these resources that you have available so that we can see which ones may be helpful for us to read and learn from. But I think of the wounded heart that you mentioned your book, God loves sex. And then a most recent book that you co-authored with Kathy Lortzell, redeeming heartache. And so could you give us an overview of those three? Yeah, thank you. Well, The Wounded Heart really is an invitation to understand sexual abuse. It is an effort to understand betrayal, powerlessness, and shame and ambivalence bring to the human heart as a result of being groomed, being violated, and often being silenced by the abuser or by the family or by the larger culture. God loves sex. I wrote with my best friend, Tremper Longman III, and he's the one I was speaking of when we were 14 and opened the door to the gospel. So I've had the privilege over 55 years of being in a friendship, but also in a gospel-serving relationship together. So God Loves Sex is really an invitation to look at this glorious book in the Bible, and that is the Song of Songs. And Tremper is a Old Testament scholar and a brilliant man who has studied and imbibed in in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And so for the two of us to labor together is a delight, but also to bring the intersection between 
oh well, what could be called theology and psychology. That book attempts to invite you to ponder what it means to be caught up in the glory of God's erotic gift to us, not only of sexuality, but of sensuality that comes from so many domains of the pleasure of being alive. And then the book that you just referred to, Redeeming Heartache, really is a kind of a deep entry into trauma, uh, where we're looking at the archetypes that Scripture gives us of trauma, and that is of being an orphan. I mean, to lose one's family is obviously a severe trauma, but also the category in Scripture of being a stranger, that is to be alienated, to have a sense that you don't fit, you don't actually have peers who enjoy you, and then to be a widow or a widower. So those three categories, orphan, stranger, widow, are they, they're just deeply clear realities of what it means to live in a traumatized, fallen world. But what we argue is that in engaging our trauma, we have the potential of being, in one sense, caught up not only in the gospel and the story of the gospel, but a participant, in many ways, a co-author with God of the goodness that he wishes to bring. So we bring those categories of orphan, widow, stranger into the interplay of what it means to be a priest, to be a prophet, and to be a king or a queen. And that notion that to be an orphan, you begin to understand what it means to care for story as a good priest. Uh, As a stranger, you come to understand something of what it means to tell the truth as a prophet. And those who have lost love know what it is to, in one sense, provide the foundation for love to be grown for others as a king or a queen. So we find this to be a very strong truth-telling, but also hope-filled book to invite people to know that trauma doesn't just have to be healed. It actually is part of what God uses to bring us into the beauty of what he desires for us to offer this world. Thank you to all our patrons who financially support this work. You put a smile on our faces when you sign up to become a patron. Your generosity is both inspiring and encouraging, and we are so grateful. I also want to invite everyone else to join the club. So visit thesavvysauce.com and click on the Patreon tab. Then follow the prompts after clicking Join Patreon here. When you contribute at least $5 a month, you automatically will have access to a bonus library of content. New podcasts are available exclusively to paying patrons every month, And every quarter, you get a new downloadable scripture card designed by Ange at Jars of Grace. So visit thesavvysauce.com and click the Patreon tab today. I like how you point out again the stories that you allude to in the book. And we won't give away all of them because I do hope people will check out these resources. But you share one example related to shorts childhood. Can you elaborate on that to give us just a little taste of what you would talk about in the book? Well, it it, it is the picture of being a stranger. And that is my mother 
actually, even though she was fairly crazy and, and wonderful and awful and sweet and beautiful, she was a complex human being. But she would often attire me in clothes that were kind of ahead of the, the culture. So even though Madras shorts or Madras cloth is no big deal, at the day that I was somewhere around fourth grade, fifth grade, uh, I wore a pair of Madras shorts. And I knew, I just knew this was not going to be a good day. And it ends up my good friend in my neighborhood looked at my shorts as we went to school and basically said, did your mom make you wear that? And it was like, I, I just told him to shut up. Well, by the time we got to the playground right before school, an older boy came and began mocking me. I mean, nobody had in our little world had, shall we say, worn a cloth like that. And it drew an audience and in the middle of that, yanked my shorts down and humiliated me. And it was in that context of that humiliation that I think in some ways, even though there were a lot of other experiences where something in me knew two things. Number one, I don't fit. I'm not quote unquote normal. But also where I think something in me became defiant and in some ways provocative as a means of escaping some of the shame that I felt in that moment. And that's the underplay that I want to underline is that even in some of our darkest moments that we can look back on and just go, well, that's just childhood. We need to honor that for that fourth grade boy, it was a profoundly humiliating experience that shaped a lot of the remainder of my life. Yet even in that defiance that brought great harm to me and to others, God's also used that defiance to do things, say things, and create things that actually have something of the mark of God's grace to it. So we're both very complex. We're all very broken. But if we can come back to this stunning thought, we are stunningly beautiful to God. In Psalm 139, verse 17, one of the phrases is, your thoughts about me, God, are precious. I mean, that's a stunning phrase that God thinks about me, and his thoughts about me are precious. And so to hold the reality that he grieved for my humiliation, but he also chooses to use something of what has come through that, ultimately for my own healing, but also for others. That just leaves me in the place and in the position that I would hope for all of us. And that is a sense of being so grateful, but also so in awe of the goodness of God. And I think you hold well the mystery of the gospel and the mystery of his working. So thank you again for sharing that. And this may feel a little bit random. It must have been years ago. I wonder if it was after you wrote God Loves Sex, but I remember hearing you interviewed and it stuck with me because I don't know that I've ever heard someone share wisdom for sexually connecting too much 
So I'd love for you to elaborate on this, but when they asked you about having sex in marriage every day, you so kindly and gently encouraged them, oh friend, I would love for you just to consider why that's a goal and maybe challenge you to enjoy some of the many other important aspects of life as well. And so will you elaborate on your valid opinion? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to remember, and your graciousness is so sweet. Thank you. Uh, I, I kind of remember, but I, because it's come up often, I, I just remember having a conversation with somebody who was requiring of his wife to have sex every day. And, you know, one of the things I said to this man was no one can indulge in that level of pleasure at the level that you are requiring her and actually still be in awe and to be in one a sense of wonder uh, of what it is that God has intended for us to experience in the midst of an orgasm. In other words, your indulgence is satiating your own body so much that you can't actually enjoy what it is that you're demanding. So to be able to step back and to be able to say, you know, I, I remember a nutritionist friend of mine said, one of the reasons that the French are often much thinner than Americans is they eat such good food, but they don't eat all of what's on their plate. That there is kind of this notion that you don't eat everything on your plate because in it, in its indulgence, you have literally lost the ability to taste how good it is. So in that sense, I believe any deep pleasure and an orgasm, uh, probably more than any event other than the misuse of a drug like methamphetamine, an orgasm creates almost 400% arousal of dopamine. Methamphetamine is about 750%. So in our daily experience of life, nothing will give our body more of what it is that really is a taste of worship than an orgasm. But when you require of yourself or your partner to, in one sense, indulge in a daily feast of pleasure, I think inevitably it will inert, it will be mitigated and lost because of your demand. So I think in some ways we step back and say, can we not finish the whole plate of food? Can we, in one sense, savor more deeply the pleasures God has given us? Wow. Thank you for clarifying that. I think it's such an important perspective to hear. And you have so many topics that you could educate us on. Where can we all find out more about the Allender Center online and learn about the rest of the resources and offerings that you have available? Well, thank you. It's the Allender Center. So T-H-E, Allender, and then center.org. And uh, our resources in terms of online courses, other conferences that we do, it's, it's, it's a good entry into this conversation. Wonderful. We will link to all of that in the show notes. And we've shared much about your past today. So for a moment, let's just focus on your current season of life. And will you share one example of something that God is presently teaching you? 
Well, I, I have six grandchildren and they are all different and they are all wildly wonderful. But one story that I've written about, my granddaughter, Elsa, this was uh, last summer or the summer before, I can't remember, but we were sitting outside. It was a beautiful summer day. And at one point she looked at me and she said, Papa, do you ever feel weird? And I'm like, I looked at her and I said, Elsa, I won't answer honestly, but can I ask, where does that question come from? She looked at me, she goes, I knew you would say that. Uh, no, you answer first. And I said, yes. And I told her actually the story of the Madras shorts and a few other stories. And it opened the door to just a conversation about how her own uniqueness sometimes gets mocked by some of her classmates. And I think that's one of what I would call the great parts of my life at this point. I get to, I'm still involved in the Allender Center. We're part of what's called the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology. I get to play in the kingdom, yet a lot of my role right now is being more a grandfather. A, a father is much more directly encouraging and involved. A grandfather steps back and lets a lot go on, not without engagement, but much more, shall we say, letting others play a more dominant role. And so that's sort of my current place. I get to grandparent my organization. I get to grandparent my grandchildren. And in some ways, uh, though it may sound despairing to people, I get to prepare for death. I'm in the dying age. And in that, the reality of being able to look back and hold both grief and joy, and to be able to say, I am way closer to eternity by actuarial tables than many people. And in that sense, I don't fear death. I anticipate what it means that one day I will be face to face with my Savior. And just the thought of being able to hear the words, welcome, my good and faithful servant. To be with Dr. Dillard again, who died when he was 39 years of age, friends who have perished due to COVID. There's a sense in which I'm in this lovely play between the past and the future and more aware of how few days there are and how well I wish to partake of the kingdom now. So that's my status. That's so helpful to hear because it's not something that we talk about often. And to hear how reflective and purposeful you are in that is very inspiring. And you're great at talking about these big themes. So I wonder, do you have any more words of encouragement to share as it relates to some of the themes we've talked about today, like intimacy? love, and even forgiveness. Well, I, a comment that my wife, Becky, just made right before I came over to be with you. And I was like taking the dishes out and putting them back and so on and so forth. And she just looked at me and she said, it's so sweet. I didn't have to ask you to do this. And I was like, well, good. Yeah. And it was just a, a very small moment, small uh, and I think often when we deal with these 
big topics that we've done today, we can lose the importance of very small moments of faithfulness. I I wasn't particularly trying to get a response from my wife, but when it came, there was a kind of taste of commendation. I think all of us long for the day of, in one sense, eternal commendation. Uh, And yet there are just small gifts each and every day that hold a taste of what will one day be that increases desire, but also brings some degree of satisfaction. So that's what I would want people to hear. Be faithful with the small. Tell the truth, be faithful with the small, and you have no clue where it is that God will take you. Love that. And I just really appreciate the way you talk about your wife and the way you write about her. It's such an honoring stance that you take and that shines through. And we've talked about some heavy things today, but I love to end on a lighter note. And you may know that we're called the savvy sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge. And so as my final question for you today, Dr. Allender, what is your savvy sauce? Well, you just named the reality that I'm married, I think, to one of the most stunning human beings I have ever encountered on the earth. So our savvy sauce is we take about a 45-minute walk every morning at about 5.30 or 6. And it is like so intriguing to hear her dreams, to hear what she's doing in the day, to be able to pray together. We usually read a psalm, same psalm separately to talk about it while we walk. So in one sense, the great sauce is that 45-minute walk. Oh, wow. I love that. That's so good. And you've just provided such a unique perspective on some heavy yet really important themes in life. And I've personally recommended your resources for years. So it was such an honor to get to speak directly with you today. You are clearly brilliant and so kind. And I just want to say thank you for being my guest. Oh, Laura. Well, let's just say even the taste of your commendation along with my wife's blessing with regard to silverware. Uh, This is a good day. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. 
Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.